96-7W. Classified top secret subject is... Hey, kids! Comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger. Hey Kids Comics. First of all, last week I couldn't remember where Punchy Punchy Run Run came from, which was shocking because it's Thomas DJ and Derek Ferguson on Better in the Dark. So I can only apologise to those two August gentlemen and recommend you go and listen to their podcast on Earth2.net. Okay. Secondly, as you recall from last week's show, Michael was under the weather, weren't yes, you? I was. But because he's made of hardy stock, mm-hmm. he's here right now. Ready to record an all-new episode. And I can talk now. Yes, despite being diagnosed with tonsillitis. Yep. He's made a startling recovery. And he's ready to rumble. Mm-hmm. Aren't you? Aye. Okay. So tonight, Hey Kids Comics, of which I am one of the hosts, Andrew Leyland. And I'm another, Michael Leyland. <laughs> right, so you're back working. Yeah. So, so you know, bring your egg in. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, back tonight with Spotlight On, which is the third one yep. of six, isn't it? So yep. we're halfway through this particular endeavour. But tonight's me. Tonight is me. It is. I get to choose. And my choice is here. Three shiny comics of shiny goodness. First of all, though, everybody's favourite part of the show. Unless it's not. Unless it's not. Emails. Our first email tonight. Is from Luke Giaconetti, whose heading is Anytime You Need Me, I'll Be There For You. I couldn't run like your dad, but I'll be there in a flash. Which is a line from the pilot episode of The Flash. Is it? Yes. It, I, I got that one. Are all of his headings quotes from movies and TV shows? And why not? Oh, Ooh, the little, little fly just buzzed around me. Uh, Luke's email begins. Greetings from the Gem Cities, Central City, and Keystone City, fellow Flash fans. Try saying that five times fast. When you guys first announced that you were going to be talking about the new 52, I said to myself, Self, I hope that Michael and Andrew talk about the Flash. So when you confirmed this, needless to say, I was very excited. Good. Well, I'm glad one of our picks went down well. Yep. You picked most of them. We both picked half and half. Did we? Yeah. Neither of us picked to do the Justice League, though, did we? No. We just said, let's do it. (laughs) The Flash is either my favourite or second favourite DC character, depending on what day you ask. Jockeying for that position with Hawkman, naturally. I love the TV series as a preteen and have read his comic for a long, long time, starting when Wally was under the mask with Mark Wade and Bright Og- Bryant, Brian Augustine, and continuing through Johns' turn with Wally West, Bart Allen, before taking over briefly. The return of Wally and Wade, then the rebirth of Barry Allen through the pre-Flashpoint series and now the current one. Add to that reading about the adventures of Jay Garrick over in JSA and now Earth 2, and I'm reading the classic Silver Age stuff in the showcase collections as well. No matter which of the four men is under the mask, I'm a Flash fan. The appeal of the Flash, I think, is a very simple one which we can all relate to. Much like one of the key factors which makes Superman such an appealing character is the reader's fantasy of what would it be like to fly. 
With The Flash, it's what would it like? What would it be like to be the fastest man on Earth? In fact, Flash's fantasy factor is actually stronger in my mind than Superman's. The closest we can get to truly flying is hang gliding, parasailing, skydiving, or looking out the window of an airplane. Now things one does every day. But most anyone can get up and run, or jog, and fantasise that maybe they could be doing it at super speed. Most of us have driven on an interstate highway and can picture ourselves moving at 60 or 70 miles per hour and think, man, it'd be cool to move like that. And to get PC for a moment here, even those of us who cannot run due to injury or infirmity, we still know what it's like to move our limbs, to grab something which is dropped, or to dodge something which is thrown. We can look at the flash spinning his arms to create a whirlwind, and we can understand the physics behind it, and figure that, well, if I could just move my arm at 200 miles per hour, I could do that too. To me, that is different, more visceral, more readily digested than thinking about the physics of picking up a car or flying through the air. The Flash's close connection to science, especially true for J.M. Barry, has always fueled this for me, and it's just something I've always loved about the Scarlet Speedsters. But enough theory. Let's get on to the issues themselves, and man, are they something else. Manipul and Bugaletto bring it, and bring it hardcore on this series, truly embracing the medium. The integration of the art and the sound effects is a particular nice truck, which I always like. Very Eisner, as you guys mentioned on the show. In various interviews, Manipul and Bacaletto have said that their intention was to create an experience where you not only read the word balloons, but also read the art, in that there is a lot of storytelling elements in the art that help create the fictional world which The Flash is running in. It's a joy to see every month and a joy to read. Along with Omak, I think that right from the beginning, this book embodied the true spirit of the superhero genre and should be held up as such to those who say the genre doesn't work anymore. Who says that? Um... Alan Moore. Alan Moore says that. Alan Moore says it doesn't work. I just pulled that out of my hand. Oh, right, okay. So you don't know that for true? He probably might have. It's Alan Moore. Okay, fair enough. It works just fine when it's treated intelligently and with care. Andy, you talked about in the first issue that you could find out everything you needed to know about the character in the first three pages. His secret identity, his powers, his costume and so forth. I would add to this that we also get to know his love interest in Patty Spivet and a major supporting player in Dr Elias in that same span. Add Iris in there, who shows up on what? Page six? And you have all the major players introduced and an action sequence which demonstrates the character's abilities to the reader in the first third of the first issue. That's just amazingly concise and well-written and drawn comics right there. I have to add also that I love, love, loved Iris popping her head over the side to look at Flash when he crashed into the sewer. For whatever reason, this nosy, feisty reporter being on the scene when the Flash has a pretty lousy landing made me really laugh. Flash continues to be a top-notch title, with the introduction of the rogues who have become metahumans due to some mysterious incident in the past. We also meet up with Gorilla Grodd, because this is DC Comics and we need talking apes. And things are building to a major storyline next year, which should be big fun. Which is already started, I think. Is it Guerrilla Warfare? Of the annual, yeah. I thought the annual wrapped up the rogues and then Guerrilla Warfare was coming next. Have you read it yet? I've not read annual number one yet, no. Okay then. Oh, okay. So there's that a tease. Mm. Alright. Uh, no, I read something else today, didn't I? For the next week's show. Oh, yeah. And I read. Um, I did. I read, Sp- I read Spider Man number four while I did Any good? It's, yeah, this issue four was really good. But okay. Sarah Pacelli's art's lovely. Alright. Um, but it's Bendis with all the good and bad that that entails. But issue four was, is recommended. I liked issue four a lot. So just read issue four. Yeah, just read issue four. That Miles Morales guy's incidental to issue four, don't matter. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure he's lovely. Yes. I've no problem with Miles Morales. Don't email him. Uh, in keeping with you guys mentioning your favourite titles of the New 52, mine no particular order are Savage Hartman, Wonder Woman and Flash. I also adored OMAC and was sad to see it go, and the war titles, Men of War, Black Ox and GI Combat, are right in my wheelhouse as a war comic fanboy. 
Regarding the Judas contract, I have this one! I picked up the trade a few months back, so I should be able to read it before the episode goes up. Woohoo! You know it. Keep up the great work, dudes. Luke. Thank you, Luke. We appreciated that. As usual, Luke can be found on Earth's Destruction Directive over on the Two True Freaks. Our next email is from Michael Bailey. Hey, kids, covers the Judas contract, or how I stopped worrying and learned to love the Titans. Which is quite an epic subject, Hedda. It is. Epic to read. Greetings from the American South to my friends in the English North. That's a good salutation. I like that. And so the time has finally come for Andrew to talk about the greatest saga in new Teen Titans history, the Judas Contract. As much as I enjoyed the coverage of the New 52, I was excited that you hopped into Doc Brown's DeLorean, hit 88 miles an hour and saw some serious stuff, and covered a story that I liked quite a bit. While I'm not a Titans fan that, say, Thomas DJ or Tom says, I am quite the fan of the team. Back in 1997 or so, a good friend of mine handed me a copy of the new Teen Titans issue 38 and said, you need to read this. There was a look to his face that I couldn't quite describe. Sure, Chuck, that was the guy's name, Chuck. And I had talked comics in the past, but he'd never actually put a book in my hands before. I could see it meant something to him, so I sat down and read the book. It was awesome! That was me trying to do The Incredibles. Okay. That was no good. That was Impressions Go. That was quite low down on my spectrum. And let's face it, my spectrum isn't that good. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> anyway, Michael's email continues. It wasn't just the writing. It wasn't just the art. It was the melding of the two. In a medium that is based on having words and images come together to tell a story, it is amazing to me that the moments where the balance is perfect are few and far between. The story was gripping and emotional. I love seeing Dick Grayson using his training as a detective to help one of his oldest friends. The art came in and sold all of the emotional beats. At the time, I was more familiar with the Wolfman Perez team on Crisis on Infinite Earth, and while there was plenty of emotion and pathos in that story, Who is Donna Troy was a personal tale that showed me why the title had been so popular. More than anything, it was Perez's take on Robin that impressed me the most. Robin has always been a favourite character of mine, and whilst I always loved his costume, Perez made it real for the first time. I saw that it wasn't a one piece of fur. It had layers and Dick could take it off when he was just lounging around and I loved how he drew Robin's cape. For the first time in my life as a comics fan the pixie boots costume looked dynamic. Sure I had liked it before but Perez made it work. To be fair I have come across artists that have also made the costume look good but Perez's version will always be the reason I will defend that costume to the well not death but damn near close. Yeah I'm probably going to get into trouble for this. Oh, but Robin's costume is one of the sillier Silver Age costumes while still working as a costume. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah. There are sillier costumes mm-hmm. that don't work at all. And there are costumes where you look at the colour scheme and think, was this sewn by a blind man? And then you realise you're looking at Daredevil's yellow and black costume and think, don't! <laughs> But other than that, there are costumes with colour schemes. Robin's is a very, very silly costume. Yeah. That somehow manages to work. But Batman's costume is silly. I don't think Batman's costume is silly. I think it does. Do you? I think it's silly. Depending on where you look at it from. Yeah. If it's drawn, it's it's all in how it's handled. But Batman's costume is easier to get away with than Robin's. Because ultimately... bright. Yeah, and and you're looking at a guy running around in bathing trunks. Yeah. And you're like, uh, that's a little bit dubious. The but, yellow pants aren't any better, though. No, no. But Perez did make it work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would add Marshall Rogers to that. There's that wonderful panel in... Oh, the 
Professor Hugo Strange issue of Detective Comics where he punches somebody and he punches upwards and because his chest is stretching his costume pops open and it looks really dynamic and, and excellent it's really good Okay. so Marshall Rogers does a good Robin as well that sounded a bit wrong doesn't it <laughs> he does Robin good he does a, you know what I mean he does a good Robin he does a, a good Robin yes Shortly after that, Chuck sold me his comics. In addition to getting a near-complete collection of Infinity Inc., I also got all of his Titans books. From there, the hunt was on. A Titans hunt? See what he did there? Mm. Was on to fill out the run, and for the first time I started buying books that were, at the time, considered quite expensive. I managed to find some passable copies of issues 3 through 15, but I have to admit I paid a good deal for the first two issues, especially number 2. For some reason, that was more expensive. Once I'd assembled a near-complete collection of new Teen Titans... Teen Titans... Excuse me, I began reading. It was one of those great comic book reading experiences that took me from DC Comics Presents 26 all the way to New Titans 105. At the time, I couldn't find a copy of 106, so that's where things ended for me in the Titans. Sounds weird, but that's how I am as a reader. I've since found that issue, and at some point we'll sit down and read the rest of the run. As a whole, New Teen Titans, New Titans is quite satisfying, as exciting as the first two years of the team's history were. I think that the Wolfman Perez hit their stride with the Judas contract. I mentioned before how rare it was for a writer and artist to come together so perfectly. It's even rarer for a creative team to embark on a huge storyline and have a satisfying payoff. It's hard to describe the feeling I had with those stories built towards the contract. The pacing was fantastic, and even though I knew what was coming thanks to my Who's Who collection, it was still a very emotional experience. Over the course of the first 30 issues, Wolfman and Perez had made me care about the characters, so to see them, especially Changeling, go through such a trying time got to me. Even though I knew it was coming, Terra's betrayal was hard-hitting, and her death even more so. With all due respect to those that got into the Titans later, hello to Tom Panneries, I don't think the Titans were ever as good as they were during the Judas contract. There were some great stories, but nothing came close to hitting all the right notes like that one did. Yeah, see... I don't know a lot of what came after, because I've not read it. Yeah. I mentioned when we did the Titan show where I, I stopped and bailed out with the Teen Titans. But to me, that is actually a very good end point. That's all the storylines they've been writing and building up towards come to a culmination and ends. So you don't have to read it. You don't have to go further than that. There's an issue a bit further on where Changeling and Deathstroke sit down in a coffee shop and talk that kind of gives some closure to that. Right. But, no, after the wedding of Donna Troy, you never need to read Teen Titans again. That's quite a boring issue, actually. Uh, I don't remember it being boring or not. I just remember that it happened. It sounds silly as well. It's not Perez's artwork either. I've been trying to kill you for this many issues. But I will... Fancy having a coffee. I will talk to you for half an hour over a Starbucks. (laughs) Unlike Michael, continues Michael. One of the aspects of the story that I liked so much was the fact that Terra was an out-and-out bad guy and wasn't as Gal wanted her to be under some form of mind control or manipulation. As Andy said, and I wrote before listening to the final part of the episode, some people are just damaged and will do bad things because it's in their nature to do so. If it had been revealed that Terra had been under some form of mind control or manipulation, the story would have lost some impact and would have been cliched. If I remember correctly, Brad Meltzer tried to revamp this in his last Will and Testament special during Final Crisis, which I found quite annoying. I mean, I know through various essays and interviews that Meltzer had a a fan thing for Terra, and I respect the man as a writer, so I can give it a pass. I think the fact that Wolfen and Perez didn't wuss out at the end is one of the reasons I like the story so much. Andy seemed a bit down on Nightwing's original costume, and frankly I can't argue the point. While I think Perez did a good job with it, as he designed it and all, and other artists, even my favourite bat artist Jim Aparo seemed to struggle with it. It's a very impractical costume. 
I'm more of a fan of the early 90s costume, though to be fair, I think Tom Grummet was the one artist that consistently got it right. Sure, I like the blue and black and now red and black costumes just fine, but the 90s era suit will always be my favourite. It's too much yellow on it. Quick question for debate. Given that Tara was back crazy and was self-destructive and would have ended up dead at some point anyway is it fair to say that because Jericho took over Slade and made Terra believe Slade had betrayed her that Jericho was responsible for her death again she was going to end up dead anyway because that's just how people like Terra end up but I wondered if Jericho bears some responsibility for ending up at room temperature um eh. no he didn't know she'd do that no I don't think Jericho Jericho doesn't know Terra so he doesn't know how insane she was. And also, it quite implicitly says in the book that Deathstroke doesn't fight Jericho for control of his body. So you can argue a case... That it was Deathstroke's fault. ...that Deathstroke lets Jericho manipulate him. Because there is definitely a, a word or a caption below it that says he doesn't fight it. He lets him take him. Because Deathstroke was as scared of terror... As, as, anyone else. as anyone else, once he realised just how insane she was. So I think I think Jericho is ultimately not culpable for that, but I think you could argue a case that Deathstroke is. But that's just one man's opinion. Mm-hmm. In regards to the did Wolfman and Perez create Nightwing question, I may have an answer. If I'm correct, the created by tag is not so much a creative team matter, but a legal one. It has been some time since I read up on the matter, but if I'm remembering correctly, one of the many awesome things that Jeanette Kahn brought to DC when she became publisher in 76 was giving more incentives to creators. One form of this was a royalty program that stated if a book sold over a certain number of units, the creators got a bonus. Usually this was split up amongst the writer and artist, penciler and inker. Kahn also ushered in, Kahn! Or at least helped usher in, uh, for lack of a better term, profit-sharing program for new creations. A good example of this is Jerry Conway, who stated that he's made a good bit of money over the years from the various uses of Killer Croc. So it would make sense that even though the same Nightwing was a Silver Age idea and Dick Grayson first appeared in the Golden Age, this idea of this Nightwing with this costume was Wolfman and Perez's. So if he was used in an animated series or movie or video game, etc., Wolfman and Perez would see some money off that. Is this right? Well, to a certain extent, yes. While it's grossly unfair that the creators of Dick Grayson never saw a dime off the merchandise, with the exception of Bob Kane, who apparently had a pretty decent contract with DC, which is why the By Bob Kane appeared on books up to the 60s, even if Kane didn't work on that story. If Nightwing, or any kind of character, did explode in popularity and became a merchandising cash cow, it would be nice to kick a few bucks or pounds to the people that came up with the idea. It's a sticky wicket in terms of how contentious the debates can become, but that's my theory on why you see the created by credit. See, I have no problem with Wolfman and Perez making money. And certainly making a little bit of extra money. It's been said that Wolfman got a nice little stipend every time a new Lex Luthor showed up. So when Lois and Clark came on, and he was new businessman Lex Luthor, he got money. Which apparently annoyed John Byrne no end. Because according to him... Wolfman's initial creation, initial outline of who Lex Luthor was, they basically took the idea the world's richest businessman and threw everything else away. Okay. So he's not best pleased that Wolfman gets money out of that. But that's the way these things work, and that's fine. My issue was maybe it shouldn't say created by. What would it Devised say? by, developed by, whatever. But okay. my argument is still Nightwing, the name, was not created by Wolfman and Perez. Okay. Dick Grayson, the character, was not created by Wolfman and but Perez. Dick Grayson as Nightwing was created by... 
And what element of creation is there in that? They put one and two together. Well, okay. If that's your argument. So, is Brian Bendis and Sarah Pacelli created as Spider-Man created by? Because they've put Miles Morales in a Spider-Man suit. Oh, well... It wasn't her, it was a different artist. Was it? Yeah. Did, was, was she not on it when She's on Miles Morales showed up? Right, okay. But, yeah, they created... They created Miles Morales. Miles Morales? So, yeah. All Ultimate right. Spider-Man. And Venom. He was created by, by um, Bendis and Bagley. But not Dick and Lee. They were nothing to do with it. Did they work in Ultimate Spider-Man? No, they didn't. But they were still credited in Ultimate Spider-Man as creators of Spider-Man. So you're arguing that any outside media that is to do with Ultimate Spider-Man, Lee and Ditko should not receive a penny, but Bendis and Bagley should get paid. Well, they do. They're credited as creators of Spider-Man in Ultimate Spider-Man. So they should all four of them should get credit. Well... It's great, isn't it? The act of comic book creation is fascinating. Who created Venom? It all goes back to that. Who did create Venom? Well, Rick Leonardi originally designed the suit. Mike okay. Zek altered the suit. Right. David Michelini created Eddie Brock based upon a story that he retconned by Peter David. Right. Todd McFarlane redesigned the suit to look like Venom, but Eric Larson added the tongue. So all of those things are Venom, so should all of them get credited as creator of Venom? Um, except for the Eddie Brock one. Why? He created Eddie Brock, not Venom. So David Michelini shouldn't get credited for creating Venom? No, because he, cre- he, he, he but created... Eddie Brock Eddie is Brock. Venom. No, he's not. Yeah, he is. No, he's, not. he's not now. Flash Thompson's Venom now. And he's not been for a long time. Yeah, but he was originally. The originally, the yeah. But Eddie Brock like. and Venom are still two different things. Yeah, okay. Spider-Man was Venom before Eddie Brock was. Alright, fair enough. Anyway, we've interrupted Michael's email. I think the idea of a series about Bob Cranston, DDS, Dentist to Hive, is something that needs to be greenlit right freaking now. Make it a soap opera where he's in love with his assistant and his assistant is in love with him, but they can't tell each other because it's a soap opera and that sort of thing just happens. How can he fix the teeth of Hive members when Janice, the assistant, won't talk to him? Romance with the backdrop of a cult that fights superheroes. It would be brilliant. That's an HBO show. Just crying to happen, I think. Like Andy, I like the idea that Dick Grayson had grown up and become his own man in Titans. I prefer the pre-crisis version where it was more a natural father and son growing apart because they're trying to figure out how the relationship works, now they are both adults thing, rather than the post-crisis ham-fisted Batman firing him after he gets shot by the Joker and thus driving a wedge between the two of them. Both are valid, I just like the pre-crisis take better. Either way, for a while, where Dick Grayson was very much a Titans character as evidenced by him being part of the DC Cosmic cards when DC Cosmic Teams cards sets from the early 90s while Batman and Robin were not due to rights issues. When Dick was brought back into the Batman fold in 95 I was a bit put off because I along with my previously mentioned friend Chuck thought that he was his own man and having him back in the Bat family somehow took away from the character. All these years later it feels natural. It is perfectly reasonable to think that a son would leave this family business to strike out on his own for a while and eventually realise that he needs to go home. So this is one of those cases where age and experience change my opinion of a story point. The new Gods reprint series did indeed get published. Hi Abbott, thanks to the collection I bought off my previously mentioned friend Chuck. I'm a big fan of all the reprint series that DC put out in the 80s. They were beautiful packages with some fantastic new covers, especially on the Green Lantern Green Arrow reprints. In the days before trade paperbacks being ubiquitous, they seemed to be a great way to read older stories without having to track down and pay for some expensive back issues. Thanks for taking the time to talk about the ads again. I love the ads from this time period that made the DC of the 80s seem an exciting place to be. Also, I appreciated the Jerry Goldsmith Rambo music 
during the Deathstroke origin issue. Good choice. Uh, thank you very much. However, I feel I need... I must point out that it was actually from the John Rambo soundtrack, which was not by Jerry Goldsmith. Because Jerry Goldsmith is, alas, no longer with us. But obviously it was his themes from Rambo. So That's it, but it's a good soundtrack. Okay. The John Rambo one. Heartily recommend it. That's it for this time. I look forward to the next six weeks, and I'm really looking forward to you guys talking about the Long Box Hunters. <laughs> Cheers, Mike. Now, normally... Yeah. I gloss over typing mistakes, but I just loved Long Box Hunters. Mm-hmm. I like the idea that this is a comic fan going around killing other comic fans so he can get long boxes off them. Wasn't that you looking for the Long Box Hunters? Was it? Or was it no, it's on my bookshelf, Long Box Hunters. One issue of Green Arrow. Oh, that, no, 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 Fatal. And Green Arrow. And Green Arrow number two, the 1980s series, and yeah, that I didn't have. One. And The Flash, yes. But I like the Long Box Hunters. Yes, we're looking forward to the Long Box Hunters. We had hoped that we would be able to talk about Arrow the new series when we did the Longbow Hunters but it won't have heard when we do that episode so we'll probably talk about that another time oh thank you very much Michael Michael can be found on views from the Longbox and Comics Monthly Monday and from Crisis to Crisis the Superman podcast and Radio KAL and all manner of other things that he does when he's not working and uh, taking care of his personal life and all that other stuff I don't know where he finds the time pulls it out of his hat he must do. Yeah, we need to podcast more time. <laughs> yeah, more time would be lovely. Uh, the Judas contract at last is the subject heading of the next email, which is from David Weeter. Hello, Leylands! He begins, hello, David. How are you? Did I thank David for sending me New Frontier? I don't know. Because him and Mike both sent me the New Frontier audio commentary. I think he did. Did I? Yeah. Thank you again, anyway. Your pal J. David Weeter here, grinning from ear to ear and satisfied at last to have finally been given an episode of Hey Kids Comics that I have been teased with for some time. Well, we like to tease. Mm-hmm. The Judas Contract is one of the few stories that I felt as positive about reviewing as I did reading it for my entertainment. This was the story that took a group of teen heroes and put them in a swim-or-die scenario that catapulted them into adulthood, and as in life, growing up is hard to do. Well, I never really liked Jericho as a character. Well, I hated him, to be honest. His introduction was handled very well. I'm still saddened that DC Entertainment chose not to adapt this story into animated form because the medium would have allowed for some truly gut-wrenching moments as Terra's treachery becomes revealed. Yeah, they were going to do this as a DC movie. Did we talk about that? Or did we not mention it? And then they canned it for some reason. Personally, I'm quite glad they canned it because there's so much backstory to this. Well, they've already animated it anyway in Teen Titans. Yeah, and they, oh yeah, they did it in the Teen Titans Go, didn't they? Yeah. So yeah, I suppose maybe that's why they canned it. But I think there's so much backstory that they wouldn't have been able to cover it in a 70-minute film. If you just leap into the Judas contract like you did, yeah, you don't really get the backstory. You don't get the build-up. You don't get the months of terror insinuating her way into the Titans. Because you're not pick and choose. I suppose they could have done like this is in January two years ago, and then I suppose they could have done it like that. But I guess we'll never know now because they've cancelled it, haven't they? As for the Nightwing creator credit, David continues, I can make a killer batch of cookies and even try innovating the recipe to make a bit of, to make some new types of cookies. But that doesn't mean I created the concept of cookies. There is still the base recipe of flour and eggs, etc. No disrespect to Wolfman or Perez, but they basically made a new mix of ingredients to alter an existing character. However, Michael's hydrogen bomb creator example was well played and gave me pause. That was a well thought out argument, and it even seemed to take Andrew by surprise. It wasn't well thought out at all. That was. <laughs> you've been spontaneous yeah uh, I am quite surprised often by how smart you are so am I you, you get that off your mum obviously you don't get that off me <laughs> looking forward to your G.I. Joe episodes 
Oh, I would say don't hold your breath, mm. but I would not be averse to doing a GI Joe episode. Plan to do a GI Joe. I, I, I've only got that one issue with GI Joe, but digitally I've got lots. All we need is one. Yeah, we only need that one, don't we? I have considered covering a GI Joe just to put that to bed. Mm. I think it'd be fun. Yeah, I think that'd be really good. Looking forward to you. Oh, I've said that. Your friend with anger management issues, J. David Weeter. P.S. Andrew, I really enjoyed Talking Cult with you on episode 12 of the Fantastic Cast, still available at ffcast.libson.com. That should keep Stephen Lacey satisfied for a week. <laughs> Stephen, like the Mickey Mouse of the Fantastic Cast, and you'll have to keep him happy. <laughs> no, he's, he always goes on, I don't plug us enough. I think I do. It's something a bit. Yeah. yeah. It's a bit unseemly about constantly hyping yourself up, isn't that? I'm not Stanley. Yeah. Uh, Judas contract and Wilson's crazy juice is the subject heading of the next email from Bobby Copley. Oh, I don't believe he's emailed in before. Mm. Hello, Bobby. Hello, Leylands. Hello, Bobby. It's nice to have a new email. It is. I really enjoyed your review of the Judas contract. If you're interested, a final crisis tie in DC Universe Last Will and Testament was written by Brad Meltzer. The issue covered a fight between Deathstroke and Geoforce, Terra's brother. Deathstroke explained he used an earlier version of the crazy juice on Terra that he later used on Rose Wilson, his daughter, and Cassandra Kane. The problem was it made Terra too crazy to be useful in the long term, and he has sent us a link to that very page. Which, if we click on, will open up and give us the thing. Unfortunately... I can't read it because it doesn't have a magnifying glass on it. I'll have a look at that later on. I have to confess I don't like the idea much, but, you know. No matter how professional Deathstroke says he is, it's very clear Sade Wilson is a petty, petty man. Destroying Blood Harvin, yeah, infinite crisis, and drugging Cassandra Kane one year later to spite Dick Grayson and Tim Drake for taking Rose away from him, make that obvious. Did Given- destroy Blood Harvin in infinite crisis? I thought it wasn't... I thought that Legion of Bad Guys dropped chemo on it. I don't remember, because I don't remember Infinite Crisis. It was destroyed by chemo falling on it. Was Deathstroke nothing to do with that? No idea. See, we don't remember, do we? We will take Bobby's word for that, in lieu of the fact that neither of us remember. I feel like reading Infinite Crisis. Alright, fair enough. Can I have the omnibus? Yeah. Given Deathstroke's common use of his crazy juice, is him using an earlier prototype on Terra that painful of a retcon? Maybe I have to read the series again, but Terra joined, betrayed, and tried to kill the Titans for the lulls puzzles me as being one of the greatest superhero comic stories ever, despite George Perez being a great artist. See, I much prefer that Terra is just evil. And she didn't join and betray them. She joined them to turn them over to Deathstroke. She didn't betray them because she was never on their side, really. They didn't know that. But that, to me, is what makes the story better than other instances of this. It wasn't a betrayal. She was always a scumbag. And she was quite clearly just mentally unhinged, which some people are. Some bad guys are just, just bad guys. Watch the world, but... There we go. <laughs> Thank you very much. Other fans have said that the Bloodhaven Crazy Juice bits were all added in after Identity Crisis and Brad Meltz had cro- canonically damaged Deathstroke. He used to be a professional mercenary aware of his own limitations, then killed a whole city to spite Dick Grayson. He's pretty cool in Identity Crisis, though. Is he? Yeah. So I don't remember that when, either. When he takes out that... Oh, yes! Yes, he does. Justice League. Yeah. It can be said that the crazy use removes Terra as a villain in her own right and makes her Slade's puppet that goes out of control. Terra Markov, being this innocent-looking teenager with a dark heart, has a certain appeal. But Deathstroke just happens to find such a teenager willing to go along with the kidnap the Titans for Hive plan without any preparation or fail-safes? Not very professional. Keep up the great work, Bobby C. Thank you very much, Bobby. Nice to get a a diverse viewpoint. Mm -hmm. Most everyone else has said, We love Judas Contract! (laughs) Speaking of which... 
our next email from Tom Panarese. We're going to go a little over the 30 minutes because we can get through all of these today. Hello, Leylands. Hello, Tom. First off, let me say that you guys did an outstanding job with your Teen Titans episode. Thank you very much. We appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Or alternatively, go on, then go and say it. What? Say that we did an outstanding job. I'm waiting for him to say it. Oh, right. Him. <laughs> your face is like, what are you talking about? What are you making me do now? Oh, I'm not making you do anything. You're still recovery mode, aren't you? Yes, yeah. The Judas Contract is very high on my list of favourite comic stories of all time, and it was great to not only hear you talk about it, but bring the perspective of someone who was there for it. I know he's complimenting me, though. It cannot but make me feel old. Mm. <laughs> I didn't start reading The Titans, continues Tom, until 1990. In fact, my first issue was the first issue of the Titans Hunt storyline, but I read The Judas Contract early on because it was available in trade paperback as far back as 1988. That trade, by the way, collected not only the four points of the Judas contract, but the three issues before it, where Dick Grayson gives up being Robin as well as the Brother Blood two-parter, a move on DC's part that I always thought was a good idea, because anyone new to the Titans would have been a bit confused as to why Dick wasn't Robin and when that happened. However, I always wish they'd collected the preceding issues at the time, because it would have been nice to read the entire Terror story arc leading up to the Judas contract. They eventually did this with the Terror Incognito trade. Anyway, I have to say, since I'm a huge Titans fan, I took the time to savour this episode as if I were nursing a beer, and actually took some notes. Slade Wilson sleeping with Tara Markov is icky, even for modern comics, although I'm sure that comics today would show a lot more of their affair rather than being subtle about it like Wolfman and Perez were. It's not my favourite thing about this story, but I still think it adds to both characters' development. Tara is a manipulative sociopath, who may very well be lying about her age if it would make you feel more comfortable. And Slade, who is still obviously grieving over his son, who idolised him, is not all with it, so that makes sense that he would be able to weasel her way into his bed. Plus, in the grander scheme of things, if he's the anti-Captain America and she's the anti-Kitty Pride, Marv Wolfman has said as much in interviews, then having them together like this is the way of twisting the knife a little. But what I love about it is they're both so villainous, you're not sure who's worse. It's not like I ever hated Slade for what he did to her because she was doing as such to him. They were clearly using one another. I think Terra's worse because Terra is just evil. Deathstroke's just honouring a contract. He doesn't do a particularly good job of it, but he's, it has he's to be said, but he's, he's just to him over, take the murder of his son out of the equation, which he does blame the Hive for. He's just honouring a contract. He's not insane. He's not even arguably a bad guy in the true definition of the word. He's a mercenary of hire. He'll kill whoever you pay him to. Mm-hmm. I prefer him as a bad guy yeah. than an anti-hero, but that's just me. Whereas Terra was just... Bad. Nucking foots, wasn't she? <laughs> Speaking of Deathstroke, he did figure out who Batman was, but he never really had need to use that information. Oh, I'm not down with that. He knows who Batman is, but didn't have use, need to use the information. And selling that information to, I don't know, Two-Face, or Black Mask, or the Ventriloquist, the Joker wouldn't care, or yeah. the Penguin, none of that was, would be of any use to him at all. Oh, here's a plot twist. Commissioner Gordon. Oh, Commissioner Gordon? Well, Commissioner Gordon wouldn't buy it. So. Um, no, no, I think that's a bit loose, that. I think that's a bit woolly thinking, to be honest with it. After the Judas contract, he basically retires and doesn't really show up as Deathstroke again until 1989 or 90. In his solo series, he does visit Gotham and grapples with Batman. I've read those. At the time, he was in his anti-hero role, although I wouldn't dismiss the Deathstroke the Terminator series altogether. Although it is flawed and the wheels fall off around zero hour, it's a halfway decent action-adventure book. Good Mike Zek covers as well. 
Slade Wilson's illicit behaviour aside, continues Tom, you're right in saying that this was a lot of maturity to the new Teen Titans, which is something that I didn't realise when I was reading the comics in the early 90s, because every woman during that time had breasts which outweighed the giant cannons that passed for guns that every male character was carrying. Rob Liffield and Jim Lee. Rob Liffield and Jim Lee, we salute you. Furthermore, Wolfman and Perez really put a lot of work into their heroes' characters, and it shows. It never felt like I did when I was reading X-Force, wondering where the action was taking place and why there was always a secret research facility or bunker or headquarters ready space within a mile of every small town in the continental United States. Donna and Corey weren't there just for the TNA. They had distinct personalities and, quite frankly, could probably kick your ass. And Dick Grayson actually felt like a detective whose changing alter egos was as natural as a son, leaving the house after he graduated college, which was done away with post-crisis and didn't need to be. You could have still had the tension between Batman and Nightwing and still had great stories like Year 3 and A Lonely Place of Dying without the notion that Dick was fired from his job as Robin. The way his character developed in the Wolfman Perez era felt organic and natural, as did the lives of the characters as a whole. Dick Grayson's fashion sense, on the other hand, is questionable straight through the 1990s. Short pants, disco collars and winged mullets are aspects of the character that are best forgotten or ignored. A couple of last things, as I've already rambled on enough. First, I'm pretty sure that the Amazons had powers and that Donna, who was a normal person, was given a portion of their powers when she was taken to Paradise Island as a girl. Right, okay. Okay. See, we always thought the Amazons were just naturally strong, therefore they don't actually have superpowers. Mm. That was the tangent we followed, wasn't it? Yeah. But it is an interesting argument. Do they have powers because their race is naturally super strong? Because to them, that's not having powers. That's just being normal. Yeah, to them. Yeah. So, so does Superman have any powers? Superman does, because he gets his powers from our yellow sun. Take him away from that, he doesn't have superpowers. But He's not normally strong. Okay. It's Thor, however, yeah. you could argue in Hercules, don't have superpowers. They are naturally strong. Mm-hmm. I think was our argument, but if, if Donna Troy was given a potion to give her powers, then she has powers. Yeah. She's not naturally like that, so fair enough. Next, you can't really place games into the continuity of the actual New Titans book, because in games, Jason Todd is still alive, but Donna Troy is Troyer, and she became Troyer right after he died. But games is the lost album of Wolfman Perez, and I believe that when the two of them finally got around to finishing it 20 years later after they'd started it, Wolfman deliberately put it out of continuity. You could shoe on it in, but I'd save yourself the headache. Um, because I'd not read Titans... Since they launched the Baxter book, I think the Trigon story was the last one I read. The first six issues of the new Baxter series, I did not know that Games was not part of continuity, but it didn't bother me. I just read it as more or less picking up from where I'd left off. Okay, it doesn't bother me whether it's in or out of continuity. It's just this own story. Yeah, and I thoroughly enjoyed reading it, even if I didn't know who Danny Chase was. Okay. Didn't really care, to be honest. Third and finally, you were right on the direct market Titans title, Killing the Book. Most specifically, the fact they ran two books concurrently with separate stories, both by the same writer, is what killed things. Wolfman admits to being burned out by his commitments to Titans and Crisis, and that's why the book suffered for a few years after George Perez's departure. Oh, there are some good stories post-Perez. Jose Luis Garcia Lopez provided some gorgeous artwork on a Titans of Myth storyline right after Perez left, even though the return of Brother Blood dragged out way too long. There were some great moments in there. I'd also recommend Tales of the Teen Titans 55, which is a true epilogue to the Judas contract, where Changeling and Slade Wilson have a very long talk about terror. That's the one I was just remembering. Sorry for such a long email, but I really enjoyed the episode. Great job as always, Tom. No, you're okay. We don't mind getting long emails every now and again, do we? Um, We've got 
we may as well finish them off. We've got two more. We may as well get through with them. Because the first one is just called Old Episodes. It's by our old buddy Gabriel Jimenez. Hi, Gabe. I'm currently downloading the back episodes. Woot, woot. Finally going to listen to your take on Transmetropolitan and Preacher. Can't wait for Sandman. Thanks a bunch, guys. Props as well to Scott and Chris. Laters. Thank you very much, Ken. He seems more enthusiastic about the old episodes than we do. <laughs> but for us, it's quite embarrassing to go back and listen to them, though, isn't it? I don't. Um, yeah, you don't. But uh, for people who've never heard them before, yes. they're all shiny and all new. So, two true freaks, Libson. So to them, it's like to them. We're, we're, we're decreasing in quality. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> never thought of it like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I didn't really think that through, did I? No. <laughs> Our last email tonight is from Chris Keith. Hi, Chris. Hello, Leyland. I thoroughly enjoyed the Titans episode. Thank you very much. And I thought I would, as is customary, uh, decide that I would at least attempt to reread, translation over analyze Marv Wolfman and George Perez's Titans. Whilst I still enjoy this storyline, my review reveals some, well, issues. Here goeth the bullet points, and I can't apologise enough for the length of the email. Destro the Terminator. Okay, I'll admit, I never liked this guy. The costume, the stupid powers, 90-something percent of his brain, whatever. But let's get right down to the creep factor. He was bedding down with a 15-year-old girl. Let's not dance around it, Marv. As you attempted to avoid the question in later Titan stories where Gar, in his annoying best, attempted to fight to the death over her <laughs> snicker, Honor. It's obvious what was going on, and even if it was only a little foreplay, she's 15! going on 60, and Slade voted in the 64 election. Gross is putting it mildly. But to then have this clown appear as an anti-hero in the 90s? I say thee nay. Destrut the pedophile should not be a book on the shelves of my local comic book store. <laughs> While we are attacking anti-heroes, did anyone else remember that Venom killed a cop in Amazing 316? Lethal Protector? Try Cop Killer. Cook him a steak dinner and find a vein. Is it horrible that I like the sound of a comic called Deathstroke? Deathstroke, pedophile, <laughs> and then put Eddie Brock on death row. Actually, is it wrong that I like both of those ideas? <laughs> Don't tell the new DC about Deathstroke, the pedophile, because yeah, that will so be out next month. Yeah. Still on Deathstroke, just for a second, his contract, taken over from Grant Wilson, was to eliminate the Titans. Why does he go to the effort to capture them and put them in his James Bond MacGuffin when the Hive should be happy with his heads in a duffel bag? That's actually a very good point. <laughs> I, oh. Come I, I thought it was they wanted them dead or alive. Dead I'd have to go back and read issue two of Titans again. I, you know, I do not remember if they specified that they want them dead. Okay. If that's true, that's hysterical. <laughs> I guess Destro, the capturer, only lived up to his name in the 2000s when he was truly bloodthirsty and wouldn't kidnap Sarah Sims just to let her go in issue 10. I know different writers, different times, but come on, she doesn't get a scratch from Mr. Super Assassin. The only Titan to ever sustain any damage from this guy in the era was... Gone. Well, I always hoped they would take the opportunity to kill him off as his character was such a poor attempt from a middle-aged man to show a character as hip and cool with the pop culture references. And even Gar was just fine in less than three issues. <laughs> Deathstroke the Capturer. <laughs> We've got two more spin-offs now. Yeah, Deathstroke the Pedophile and Deathstroke the Capturer. It's working for Deadpool. Yeah. Marvin George, The Creation. 
I'm going to say this with all due respect to Marvin George for Crisis and some of the stories in Teen Titans. I didn't start reading these until college, so my tastes were different from when these originally were published. I just don't think that they create well all the time. Tara Markov was somewhat okay in concept. However, when you take an unlikable character and make them a traitor, they are really tugging at the heartstrings of the reader. The costume is a rip-off of Brian, her brothers, and nothing original there. As for Nightwing, okay. Here's where it will sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. I agree that Nightwing was a concept that needed to be explored with Dick. He didn't work as Robin anymore, and to be honest, the Batman books have done nothing with him in forever. Titans actually gave him an outlet, and I really liked how it was obvious that he was leader of the team. As for creation, Andrew, I agree with you. Feel free to cut and paste this statement. What did they create? Robin is a Bill Finger creation. Nightwing was a Silver Age concept. So let me go a step further. The costume, as my friend pointed out this afternoon, is a blue rip-off of Boston brand. It is, isn't it? <laughs> it's Dead Man's costume. Although it would make sense with them both. With them both in circus acrobats, yeah. So I, I'm presuming it's intentional that neither of us caught. But yeah, that's actually another valid point. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad we decided to read this one today instead of leaving it to next week. I'm guessing that George and Marv were reading some Dead Men when this story arc came up, which explains Dick's costume and Jericho's powers. That's actually another valid point as well. Yeah. Jericho and Dead Man's powers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so is Jericho dead then? Well, he is now. Deathstroke killed him. Oh, okay. As for creating Jericho, puffy shirt? Really, George? Oh, small point. The Innovator was a device used by Kurt Connors to create the Iguana. Yes, he was. Peter Parker's Spectacular Spider-Man. The Iguana. Yeah. Mantlo used it in Peter Parker around the same time Marv was writing Amazing. Hmm. Uh, well, Marv... It wouldn't be the first time Marv had used something that something had been used by somebody else. There is an issue of the Teen Titans, I forget which issue it is, and there's an Amazing Spider-Man annual with art by John Byrne that has exactly the same story about one of the Titans, our Peter Parker, investigating this guy. Um, And all the way through the story, he's helping him with this case. And the twist in the story at the end of both stories is the guy died a year ago in mysterious circumstances. Ooh. Exactly the same plot, exactly the same twist. Other than my quibbles, I enjoyed this story arc. Like you, Andrew, I bailed around the wedding in issue 50 as the reality hit me. Terry Long... Terry Long? This is the best you can do, Donna? I tried to get back in, but the combo of Gar, annoying, and Danny Chase, double plus annoying, made the book unreadable. Thought about buying games, saw that Chase was in the book, out. Actually, Danny's okay in games. Okay. I didn't know who he was, and he didn't greatly annoy me. I know a lot of, and there are an awful lot of people who think that Danny Chase would look better if his head was on a pike outside Titan's Tower. Okay. But other than that, I don't know anything about the guy. Excellent show as always, thank you very much. I'm on the Vertigo episodes of your classics, which is full of Neil Game and goodness, so I'm sure I'll be entertained. Thank you as always, Chris Keith. Thanks, Chris, that was good, that, I enjoyed that. Oh, a PS. The idea of Robin as a private investigator would have been a good subplot to explore in the early 80s Titans. Sadly, I always found Tom Selleck's ridiculously short shorts hard to look at. Robin's green underwear has him beat in the needlessly exposed man-thigh department. <laughs> Fur comment. That would, that would be a cover, wasn't it? Yeah. Dick Grayson logged in his uh, chair with a, a with white shirt on. And his green pants. <laughs> and uh, Higgins in the background yeah. telling him to get off the tennis court. <laughs> uh, right, okay, that's it for emails. We're going to have a quick break and then we'll be back with my choice for Spotlight On. In September of 2011, a new show hit the internet 
called Bailey's Batman Podcast. The show's premise was to cover Batman in the comics starting with the first appearance of Jason Todd. It lasted seven episodes, and then disappeared. Now, it's back. That's right, folks. Michael Bailey here with the news that Bailey's Batman podcast has returned with a new format and a new release schedule. Before, things were pretty rigid, and I was sticking with just the comic books. Now the show is more casual as I cover what I want to talk about in regards to The Dark Knight when I want to cover it. The comics, the movies, the animated series, the trading cards, the action figures. Anything and everything is fair game with movie and episode commentaries and special guest hosts as well. So head on over to www.baileysbatmanpodcast.com every two weeks. Check out the latest episode. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Bailey's Podcasts and check out the Bailey's Batman Podcast page on Facebook. Bailey's Batman Podcast. The best Batman podcast on the internet. Hosted by Michael Bailey, that is. And we're back. Uh-huh. Oh, second pick. Or oh, my second pick. Yeah. For Hey Kids Comics Spotlight On is a writer who I first met via a few special one-offs, i.e. fill-ins, in Amazing Spider-Man before taking over Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man, as a regular writer. Mr. Peter Allen David. Born in Maryland in 1956, David has had a career that can best be described as prolific, working in comics, novels, films and TV. What first sold me on his writing was twofold. Firstly, David seemed to be able to write characters and in-character humour, but for the most part didn't seem like humour for the sake of it. On occasions, I feel he crosses the line into parody, specifically his digs at other creators in his work, and the Skippy the Jedi droid story from the Star Wars Tales comic book, but largely David's books have always had a chortle or two. He also has a knack for blending humour into very dark stories. His Star Trek novels frequently have very dark themes, but this is balanced by one-liners and smart dialogue. His comics are similar. His calling card into the world of comics, The Death of Gene DeWolf, a four-part story from Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man, starts with a horrific murder and continues to detail the effects of this death on Spider-Man and his feelings when dealing with a cold-blooded killer, but interspersed with humorous situations. His near 15-year run on The Hulk is an awesome run of comics in which David is never content to let the status quo become too stale. Three comics then from a writer I feel is actually rather underrated. I thoroughly enjoyed his runs on Peter Parker and his various other books over the years, with personal favourites being his aforementioned Hulk run, his great tenure on Supergirl, and the marvellous creator-owned Saxon Violins. In novels, whilst his Star Trek novels are all pretty decent, my favourites are Strike Zone, Imzadi, and The Rift. My favourites of his own work, however, is Howling Mad, David's story of what happens to a wolf bitten by a werewolf, and his King Arthur novels Nightlife and One Night Only. My three issues this week pick out a particular skill of David's, pure humour, a knack of hitting on a standard idea and twisting it, and pure drama. I've not asked you, you do, do you know anything about Peter David? Things. Excellent, good. Wrote a couple episodes of Babylon 5, so that's, that's you not interested. Oh, I've, I've read some things he wrote. <laughs> good, what these that we're covering tonight? Some other things, <laughs> I don't know what. Some stuff, I don't know. Still can't talk proper dad. Uh, first up, 
on tonight's docket is Amazing Spider-Man 267. Cover dated August, but released on April 30th, 1985. You gotta get me back to 1985, Doc. We're sending you back to the future. Or to the past. Or to the... yeah. The cover is by Mark Bright and Kyle Baker, of Spider-Man clinging to a moving subway train. It's quite a nice cover, the colouring's very striking, especially of the lights on the train. The corner box still has Spidey in the black and white secret war suit, whilst on the cover he's in his red and blues. Such was the schizophrenic nature of the Spider-Man books in the 80s. Did you like the cover, Michael? Yeah. Excellent, good. Moving on. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have anything else to say? It's all bright and dark. It's all bright and dark. Yeah. I'm a beach person and a night person. Well, no, it makes sense because it's dark. Because he's in the subway. The train is at, well, the train in the story is outside. I thought he caught the subway. It's outside, isn't it? I thought he caught the subway to Scarsdale or wherever the hell it is he ends up. To Hellsville. Hellsville. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, that train is outside, yeah. But the guy gets on a subway earlier on, doesn't he? Yeah. Right, yeah, so we're both right. Mm-hmm. Which is the kind of right I can live with. The Commuter Cometh was scripted by Peter David with art by Bob McLeod of the Clan McLeod. Letters by Joe Rosen, colours by Bob Sharon and edits by Jim Owlsley. Editor-in-chief was Jim Shooter. I can't be the only person who's made that McLeod joke. If you are now. If I, if I am, I am very impressed by my originality and wit. Something that doesn't normally impress me. Uh, I don't impress me much. So you think you're Brad Pitt? I don't impress me much. What does it take to impress you, Shania? What? <laughs> uh, the story begins. Spider-Man is bemoaning his lot when the Human Torch buzzes by to tease him a bit. Spidey tries to be polite but tells the Torch he needs an early night as he feels a cold coming on. Swinging away, Spidey sees a crime in progress and the perpetrator, named Ron... I don't buy a, a hardened criminal named Ron. Is he a hardened criminal? Unless it's the two Rons. But I never liked Hale and Pace either, so... Uh, Ron takes off with a hostage at gunpoint, forcing Spidey to hold back. Ron flees to the subway, and Spidey learns that the hostage is a shop dummy, and the gun, a cigarette lighter. Spidey launches a spider tracer at the man as he jumps onto the subway and escapes. The next day, Peter Parker rises bright and early, and I turned into a 14-year-old boy. The next day... The next day... <clears throat> the next day, Peter Parker arises bright and early to get a signal from his tracer. After wasting half a day, he decides to bring the old automatic tracer out of mothballs as this has a better range than his spider sense. The older signal tracer leads him to Scarsdale, out in the suburbs of NYC. After running with a little girl on a big wheel, snagging his tights on a tree, realising there is no word to swing from in the sticks, being hassled and sexually harassed by the neighbourhood watch people, and hitting a lift on a dustbin truck, Spidey locates the signal just as Ron spots it and destroys it. Fortunately, Ron decides to flee, and Spidey's forced to hop a cab to pursue. After a frankly ludicrous chain of events involving everybody in the story, Spidey catches Ron and decides that the suburb is just a little too wild for your friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man. Yay! The type of suburbs where everyone knows everyone. Yes, everyone's everyone, everyone knows everyone else. Yes. Oh. Um, and in everyone's basement there's this demon which cuts out your heart every day. <laughs> Ronnie Cray was very nice. That's a very good point. Completely slipped my mind, Ronnie Cray. I was just thinking more of Ron. Anyway, the opening of this comic, after that little interlude, she shows up, the missus, doesn't she? Hi, mm. Angela. Every now and again, throws out these pearls of wisdom and just disappears in a puff of smoke. 
The opening with Spidey and the Torch is actually quite lovely, compared to the current era of Marvel Comics, where the creators are just depicting Spidey and the Torch as a couple of frat boy boneheads who never grew up, Spider-Man and the Torch have a nice little banter here. Spider-Man's dialogue on page one looks like it's a post-production add-on, something that's quite prevalent in this story, perhaps due to the fact that it's a fill-in. The exchange between the two on page two is very funny. The Black Cat. There is a sexy little number. Sexy, intelligent, sexy, charming, sexy. Hats off to you, Spidey, you're a lucky guy. We broke up. Good, who needed her? Which I thought was funny. Sorry, I did. Um, And then he cops an eyeful of the two topless sun worshippers on the roof. Which was quite funny also. I like how that one isn't like bothered. No. Yeah, check me out, Johnny. Good Lord has blessed me with gift and <laughs> have to share it with words. I like that Spidey's oblivious, which is also quite amusing. On page four, Spidey doesn't realise that Ron is holding up the room with a cigarette lighter. I mean, he's not really holding it up, it's short, isn't it? He's just robbing it after hours. And the storefront dummy is not a real person. His spider sense doesn't warn him of danger. I can buy the cigarette lighter gun. Because obviously there's no real danger. There's an advert for Death Wish 3 above the subway there. Um, I don't know why I felt the need to point that out. Okay, I just yeah. spotted it. Uh, I can buy the cigarette lighter gun. I'm having more of a problem accepting that Spider Man doesn't realise that's a dummy. Oh, the amount of times I'm in a shop, then I'll be terrified of a mannequin because yeah. they look like real people, though. They don't, though, do they? They can do when they're in the corner of your eye. And you yeah, but if he's carrying her. And then you turn around and hit one. And, and then... she's not moving. You get yelled at by the people who work there. Wouldn't you think? She's a bit stiff. <laughs> She's a stiffener, all right. Oh dear. Page five. Uh, there's another line here that also seems like an add-on line of dialogue to explain why Ron is now in a suit. He gets on the subway. He's wearing a red jacket, what looks like blue jeans, but they could be slacks, um, and shoes. So they're probably not jeans if he's wearing shoes with jeans. Boots with jeans, yeah. Dress shoes with jeans, not so much. Listen to me for your fashion tips. I got one bloke. Oh, okay. Come to me. I don't want to be looking like Gok Wan anyway. Nobody wants to look like Gok Wan. Uh, unfortunately, not even Gok Wan. Uh, it does eliminate a continuity error here because it says, oh, I'm glad I left these clothes in that locker in a thought bubble that looks like it's been tacked on. Mm-hmm. However, it creates a continuity error later in the story. If he swapped his clothes at Grand Central Station, which is what he says he did, yeah. and then hopped on a train to Scarsdale, yeah. the implication, though, is that he left his clothes in a locker at Grand Central, because he's not carrying them, is he? But he has them later. But later on, he has them. Mm-hmm. And the spider tracer is on his red jacket that he has later on. So, theoretically, Spider-Man's spider tracer should have led him to a locker at Grand Central Station. Yeah. It's a bit of a continuity give that, isn't it? Just a bit, yeah. I don't mean to pick holes mm-hmm. in this storyline, and especially seeing as that may not actually be Peter David's fault if that was added in post-production. Yeah. But, you know, even if it wasn't, where did his red jacket go? Because he's not got it on anymore. Page 7 and 8 are a nice little juxtaposition between Peter Parker's home life, a dingy apartment, a TV dinner whilst watching Dallas, before being in bed alone, in comparison to Ron's home life, a nice suburban house, a pretty wife, cooked meal and some bedroom antics. Crime apparently does pay. Yeah. Ron's wife is complicit in his work, which I quite like. Yeah. Normally in these storylines they're keeping it a secret from the missus, aren't they? Mm. But in this one she knows what he does. 
she seems to have a regular job though yeah which struck me as a bit odd I'm married to this crook who makes this much a year by being a crook but I'll go out and work for a living maybe she works for a living to cover the fact that they've got the nice house so it's like it's his salary oh, okay. the, the, the her salary that pays for everything right. maybe that's like the Sopranos Okay. Tony Soprano used to do. I do like the pages, um, especially the bit at the end where he stamps on the spider tree. So, but I, I like seeing how the how different or similar the the lifestyles are. Yeah, he, the, he does play with that quite a bit. Um, cameo appearance by Matt Murdock. Okay, as Spider Man swinging around. I didn't notice that before. On page nine, I presume it's Matt Murdock. It's well, a ginger guy wearing shades with um. And yet he can see Spider-Man and look shocked at yeah, Spider-Man. Yeah, there is that. I can't... His briefcase is monogrammed, but I can't read what it says on it. If but, it wasn't Matt Murdock, he's got his sight back. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he's just reacting to the fact that he's, his super senses have heard that Spider-Man's above, and he's gone, oh! And he's give away his super oh, he's heard them saying Spider-Man's above, and he's going, whoa, whoa. Mm, that's fair enough. When did I turn into a... <laughs> that guy, that guy. <laughs> Boris Johnson Boris Johnson oh dear god <laughs> it's a sad step so it's Spider-Man <laughs> I say chat I would love Boris Johnson's reaction to Spider-Man <laughs> Wally <laughs> it's that Spider-Fellow come come down here and I will show you how to ride a bike in congested London streets <laughs> So I don't need to ride a bike, Boris. I web swing everywhere. Ah, we must come up with a tool for that. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't it a sad state of affairs when the best politician in the country is that bumbling buffoon? (laughs) It's because he's a bumbling buffoon. Oh, dear God. Uh, Anyway, continuing this comic book. The Return of the Spider Tracer, originally created in Spider-Man number 11 to locate Dr. Octopus. Spider-Man later modified the tracers to work off his spider sense. When the Hobgoblin robbed him of that ability in Amazing Spider-Man 249, he went back to using the handheld device. Presumably, he chucked it back in its closet after that, because here it's tucked away in a box again. Page 10, Scarsdale is about 25 miles from New York. So the handheld tracer has a pretty good range. Mm. Spidey webbing up the dog on that page is hysterical. <laughs> the dog, the dog's called Ralph. <laughs> Ralph? Did you get that? Ralph? Yeah, I... You find this hilarious? I do. I find this this issue hysterical. I don't know why. Uh, Page 11. The little girl is called Shana. Presumably named after Peter David's daughter and not Kazar's missus. Mm. Although Kazar is mentioned on this page. Yeah, I do like that line. I'm I'm gonna make like Kazar... As he jumps into a tree. <laughs> it collapses. <laughs> See, superheroes are slapstick can totally work. Yeah. Most of the time. Um, Spidey having nothing to swing from and then snagging his costume in the tree is quite humorous. Mm. It doesn't rip, does it? Uh, probably not. No, it just snags in the tree. It doesn't say that it rips. Although, again, that line looks like a post-production add-on because the lettering... Yeah. Is different from the lettering around it. Uh, Spider-Man is then searched by Neighbourhood Watch, husband and wife team. Whilst he's an officious busybody who's been given a little power and let it go to his head, she's a sexually frustrated housefrau who harasses our boy. They both find themselves webbed up for their troubles. Yeah. For some, for some reason, the Neighbourhood Watch guy reminds me of Grandad. Why? Well, 
whenever I stayed there, he'd always be out the window watching kids playing and talking to Get the, lawn! the little neighbourhood watching, complaining that there were kids having fun. God forbid. <laughs> and they've got a nice field to play on there as well. They were playing there. on that field. Oh, God forbid they should have fun. I do like it after he webs them up. It's to the car. Women's touch! Ha! I saw where you... T- I hate your mother! <laughs> Come on, that was funny. Yeah. And he spied his walking away going, nine, ten. <laughs> uh, page 14. Spider-Man's kicked off the roof of the bus for not paying. No ticket! quote Indiana Jones and the panel where Spider-Man walks alone down the street and the household is just watching it's pretty funny as well mm. I like this I think it's just, I love that they're all distracted like the guy the, who's mowing water in his lawn and he's distracted by Spider-Man and he shoots that other poor guy in the face <laughs> I'm sorry I found this one funny I really did um, page 15, the dustbin men are happy to give Spidey a lift because Spidey saved one of their sisters from a mugging once. Which I thought was quite nice. It's always nice when someone likes Spider-Man. It's always nice Pick when someone likes Spider-Man. Issue. Odds are, 90% of the time, everyone in that issue hates Spider-Man. Well, see, this is one of the things about Spidey when people, you can understand why back in the old issues, the Prowler went after him and Quicksilver went after him and Kazar went after him. If you think about it, the public perception of Spider-Man is the Daily Bugle's public perception of Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. So everyone is going to think he's a criminal. Yeah. Because the bugle says he's a criminal. Newspapers keep repeating something loud enough, people will start listening, whether it's bogus or not. Uh, page 17. Oh, sorry, I've skipped a page there. Page 16, Ron manages to find the tracer, despite him leaving the jacket in a locker at Grand Central Station, which we've already mentioned, just as Spider-Man is outside, and he trashes it. Spidey hadn't got a lock on the correct location. So, if Ron had just stayed inside... Instead of piling a big bunch of money into his briefcase and making a run for it, he'd have gotten away with this. Oh, not for his not pesky trying kids. to run over Spider-Man on his way out. Oh, not yeah, because even if he just drove out, if he, Spidey may not have spotted him. Mm. Although Spider-Man's spider sense is tingling, though, why? At that point, he's not in any danger. No, on the next panel, he is. He's near the spider tracer. Though. Yeah, but he's destroyed the spider tracer. Oh yeah. On the page previous, he stamped on it oh, like yeah. it was a bug. Page seventeen. Instead of running. Ron tries to squash our boy with his Volvo. Spidey makes with the quippage, which is quite funny stuff. David's very good at making Spidey funny, and not in an overbearing, irritating, smart-ass way like some writers make it. The bumper coming off when Spidey tries to web the, Dolvo, the Volvo the Dolphin, and him landing on his ass is hysterical. Getaway Dolphin. His getaway Dolphin. <laughs> Grand Theft Auto, Getaway Dolphin. <laughs> That's a new game just waiting to happen, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Page 18. I do like Spider-Man running along and saying there's never a cab around when you need one as a cab pulls up at the side of it. I like how the cab's faster than him. <laughs> well, he's not a runner, Spider-Man, presumably. I thought he was. Would he be faster at running than anybody else? He's faster in Spider-Man too. That's true. He goes sonic speed in that one. It, what, running, does he? Does he turn into the flash? Well, in the game. Oh, right. Because oh, okay. if you run and then you go to a building, you can run up walls. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, okay. Um, the issue culminates with all the protagonists meeting up for a vaguely Three Stooges-esque ending in which Ron nearly runs over Shana, causes a crash between the neighbourhood watch couple, the dustbin truck and the taxi, a gridlock with the bus, and tries to get the cops to arrest Spider-Man. Um, I thought this was quite funny stuff, as evinced by the fact I chuckled all the way through this. Mm-hmm. It's very light. 
isn't yeah. it? It's obviously a fill-in. But the story's structured well, and the incident building upon incident. There's a number of decent scenes and one-liners. The art by Bob McLeod, of the Clan McLeod, is solid throughout, and this is a fun little done-in-one story. There's a slight little discrepancy with the story logic. And you do have to ask why Spider-Man went to all this trouble. But a crook's a crook, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Isn't he? Meanwhile in Manhattan... Ah, Doctor Doom! Yes! Dr. Octopus has trashed Times Square yeah. while Spidey that in the suburbs. Yeah. The one time he wasn't there to stop him is the time he succeeds in trashing New York. Mm. I hope this wrong guy was worth it. Um, the letters page talks about the fact that Spider-Man is wearing two different suits at the moment due to Marvel wanting it both ways. The bullpen bulletins page plugs ElfQuest, Dreadstar, Daredevil 221, Avengers 258 and Rawhide Kid number one. The ads are mostly acne cream and snack-based products, presumably after eating the snack-based products you need some <laughs> acne cream. Uh, and there's an ad for the Puffy Secret Wars stickers, which I had as a kid. Okay. I totally had those Puffy Secret Wars stickers, they were cool. Alright. Very, very cool. Um, and Secret Wars 2 is up to issue number three, crossing over into the Avengers 260, Incredible Hulk 312, and Daredevil 223. Wasn't two the crapper one? <laughs> the crapper one yeah. of the two. Neither was particularly gold, but that one was even worse. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's Secret Wars. I, I have thought of doing Secret Wars too. Okay. But we'd have to do all the tie-ins as well. Yes. And at some point we'd just lose the will to live. Oh, yeah. Did you enjoy that one, Michael? I did, yes. Is that pretty much all you have to say about it? Yeah, I enjoyed it. Did it make you chuckle? It bits made me chuckle, yeah. <laughs> it made me laugh. Chuckle like a gopher. Chuckle like a gopher. Our next issue is not that one, so I best um, rearrange the order. One of the things I felt needed to be covered when I decided that Peter David was going to be one of my creators was his work on Star Trek. David has made his name as a Star Trek novelist, primarily, but I think his comic Star Trek work came out first. He started in the waning days of DC's first Trek comic series, covering stories such as the pacifist Klingon Konom Stagdu. Yeah, that, that actually happened. There was a pacifist Klingon, and he had a Stagdu. Okay. Oh, hilarity ends <laughs> uh, And a trip to hell. When the title was relaunched on the back of Star Trek V The Final Frontier with shiny new Baxter paper, David was rehired as the writer. This was not a happy marriage. Whilst David produced some excellent Trek work during this time, including stories such as The Trial of James T. Kirk and an unofficial Star Trek Lost in Space crossover with Lost in Space actor Bill Moomy as co-writer, he was constantly being harassed by then-Paramount liaison Richard Arnold, who, according to David, took a dislike to the writer's work and demanded constant changes and alterations, frequently gutting storylines to satisfy his capricious whims and bad-mouthing him to Trek creator Gene Roddenberry. Issues 16, 17 and 18 of the Trek comic were last-minute film by Howard Weinstein and Babylon 5 creator J. Michael Straczynski after Peter's original scripts about the Enterprise crew being lionised and emulated by the populace of a primitive Earth-type world oddly similar to a rejected idea for Star Trek's 30th anniversary on Deep Space Nine that was rejected by Arnold for being too comedic and not taking the characters seriously enough after his scripts for stories up to issue 24, a multi-part time travel story involving a lot of characters from past episodes were rejected for being not simplistic enough for Trek fans, Peter decided to quit the book then cause constant hassle for editor Bob Greenberg. Is that not kind of insulting your audience? Oh yes, very much so. 
It's a pity Peter David couldn't stick it out, because within a year Gene Roddenberry will have passed away and Richard Arnold was sacked from Paramount within 24 hours of Gene's death. David wrote about Arnold on page 125 of his But I Digress reprint book, printing columns from Comic Buyer's Guide, isn't it? That he does um, columns for, yeah. It seems appropriate, therefore, that for my Star Trek choice, I picked issue 19, David's last as regular writer, but one of the best of his run. Released on March 19th, 1991, with a May 91 cover date, this issue boasts a superlative cover by Jerome Co... Jerome... Double... Jerome... Jerome K. Moore. It's a symbolic cover of the core cast, Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Scotty, Uhura, Chekhov and Sulu, beaming down to a rocky outcropping with the Enterprise in the background as many moons hang low. It's a movie-era crew, so they're wearing the uniforms from the film series, Star Trek II onwards, but specifically they're wearing the jackets they wore in Trek II for away missions. Very good and striking. Moore did a number of Trek covers for the series, and all of them were very fine indeed. The story is entitled Once a Hero. It was written by Peter David, with pencils by Gordon Purcell and inks by Arne Starr. Bob Pinahar lettered, Tom McCraw coloured, Robert Greenberger edited, and Star Trek was created by Gene Roddenberry. The Enterprise has been assigned to find out what happened to a Federation freighter, the Arcade, en route to the Sandor Colony 9 that has disappeared. Sandor wants the colony to succeed, but their adversaries, the Hagi, would like nothing better than to see the Sandor Colony fail. Spock states the Arcade may be on Dinar 4, the only local planet with a hospitable atmosphere, but they do not respond to hails due to a force field around the camp. Chekhov picks a security team to beam down with him, Kirk, Spock and McCoy. On the planet, Spock locates the arcade, but there is something suspicious about the crew of the vessel when the leader, Ventura, says they have no reason to trust them. After Kirk threatens to prove their identity as Starfleet officers by using the Enterprise's phases to blast away the Force Shield, the crew acquiesce and let Kirk and crew in, but their behaviour elects suspicion from Ensign Lee and Scotty, who has beamed down to check the engines of the arcade. A phaser fight breaks out and the leader of the arcade crew, Ventura, aims and fires at Kirk, but Ensign Thomas Lee shoves him out of the way, taking the full brunt of the blast. Spock tries to ease his pain with a mind meld, but Lee passes away. Back on the Enterprise, Kirk is writing the obituary for Ensign Lee, but is aghast to discover he knows nothing about the young man who sacrificed himself to save his commanding officer. Dr. McCoy, ever the pragmatist, tells Kirk that if writing an obituary on a man he never knew is troubling him, he should attempt to get to know the man. Kirk relives the events that led to the security officer's death. He speaks to Lee's colleagues to get a measure of the man. His security officer workmates didn't really speak to him, as he'd only just transferred aboard. Head of security, Mr. Chekhov, also barely knew the man, a fact he now feels guilty about. Spock tells Kirk that his last thoughts as he passed away were, I can't wait to go swimming again. In the brig, Kirk speaks to Ventura, who shows no remorse for the death of Lee. He's also very cocky when Kirk reveals they know he's a Hagen pirate, who stole the shuttle and transferred the crew to their own ship with a view to ransacking the shuttle. But Harass, the captain of the arcade, rigged the guidance system to malfunction, and Ventura and his pirates were forced to land on Dinar 4. Ventura says he doesn't care about that. As their crimes are against the Federation, they know that nothing the Federation has will keep them in prison for long. Kirk says that as the arcade was working with the Sandor, Ventura and his crew are to be remanded to them for the crimes. But the penalty for murder is to have your skin peeled back and an acid-like substance poured in the wounds. Kirk leaves them to stew in their own juice. Later, Kirk delivers Lee's eulogy, tossing away the standard Starfleet rhetoric to give an impassioned eulogy to Edson Lee. Should I do a dramatic read? 
Uh, the ending of the issue is one of Kirk's inspiring speeches, which, which he did quite well in the original series, it has to be said. So I am going to attempt to do a dramatic reading for you all. If, you, if I don't like it, it's getting cut out. So if we leap straight into the what we thought of the issue here, I didn't like it. You ready? Go on. Do I have to do it as William Shatner? Oh, yeah. Or should I do my own interpreter? William Shatner. <laughs> Thanks, love. Do the Shatman. Do the Shatman. That's do the Bartman, isn't it? Okay. I'd like to thank you all for coming to this memorial service. The following is the Starfleet-approved eulogy that is recommended in cases like this. We are here to honour the memory of... Name goes here. Rank. Surname was a fine officer, a credit to Starfleet and a sterling representative of the blank race. Space exploration is a dangerous task. Rank surname knew this, and yet he, she or it, did not let that deter him, or her, or it. We can be thankful that we had the privilege of working with Rank surname, and will forever honor the name of our fallen comrade. I cannot tell you the number of times I have delivered that eulogy, filling in the proper blanks, embellishing slightly where I could, and I have congratulated myself after each one, telling myself that I did honor to the name of the dearly departed. Death has blended into death. I have lost good men and women more than I can count. Their faces blur before me, and I have come to realize that we cannot honor their names when we cannot remember them. That we cannot honor the words of our nice, safe eulogy when they are merely words. I've spoken to over a dozen of you today and discovered that none of you knew Thomas Lee. Nor did I, even though he was a member of the crew, sharing the same dangers and same rewards. Even though he was one of us, he was a cipher, a no one, defined by the parameters of his position, a security guard no one got to know. No one cared. He spoke to no one, and no one spoke to him. He was just another man in the ranks. I do not blame you. I'm as guilty as any of you, but Thomas Lee died saving my life. Perhaps it's selfish, but I want that to mean something. I want him to mean something. His mother's name was Anna, his father's Jack. He had one sister who died when she was five. He was born in Sparta, Illinois, graduated in the upper half of the academy. I have more facts at my fingertips, but I don't know his favorite color. I don't know his tastes in music, or if he was ever in love, or how he drank his coffee, or even if he drank coffee. I don't know why he joined Starfleet. I don't know what he wanted to accomplish. I don't know him. I don't know a man who saved my life, and now I never will. There was absolutely nothing special about him, and it was the realization that I perceived him as not being special that indicated there was something wrong with me. Just another man, just another expendable security guard who won't come back. How many have we lost? How many have we cared about? Whilst we are busy exploring the unknown wonders of space, we must not lose touch with exploring the wonders of each other. We must always make time for one another because we don't know how long we'll all be around. 
I will always regret having taken for granted someone who sacrificed himself without a second thought, because the death of even one of us diminishes all. Do you know how thoroughly enjoyed doing that? I don't know if it was any good or not. Because nobody gave me a round of applause. Oh dear me. I quite enjoyed that. I don't know how good it was. When I listen to it back, we'll see. Um, was it a good bit of actor? Thank you very much. Should I have been an actor? Should have been an actor. Should have been an actor on stage. And a film. William Shatner impressionist. <laughs> no, there's enough for that. We don't need another one of that. Uh, page one of this story, now that I've ruined it. Uh, David does something really interesting with the structure of the story, which I simplified significantly in the synopsis. It was all out of gas. Yes, it was out of gas from Firefly, yeah. Well, good. Well spotted, yeah. Um, he opens the story with Kirk trying to write Lee's eulogy and then peppers the story with the flashbacks showing how Lee met his fate whilst cross-cutting with more up-to-date instances of Kirk trying to find out a little more about the man before culminating in the conclusion of both story strands, the death of Lee and what happened to the arcade. It's a very effective storytelling technique that, to David's credit, is never confusing. Were you confused by it? Obviously not, no, because you, you're the one who mentioned the similarity to Out of Gas. Which it, it, yeah. And that issue of Aquaman. Is there an issue of Aquaman that does this as well? Yeah, where, where he ends up in the desert, and he's all like, huh, desert. Oh, right, yeah. Stories have to have a beginning, a middle, and an end, but not in that order. Mm-hmm. Apparently. Um, I like the credits. Or a Starfleet emblem. Yeah. I quite like that. I thought that was quite cute. Um, page two. We come to the reason that I pick this story. Which is Peter David's ability to pick on something that is a common storytelling trope. Such as the death of red shirts in Star Trek. That's become a bit of a joke. Let's be honest. Uh, even Google today. Uh-huh. Google's got that thing up, hasn't it? Celebrating. Is it 46, 46th birthday of Star Trek? This very day. September the 8th. Uh, and even on that, you've got the two the of them on the transporter beam and the, you go over the red shirt and he cries because yeah. he knows he ain't coming back alive mm-hmm. um, but he's turned it into quite a tragic story Kirk's admission here that he has no idea who Ensign Lee was and wouldn't even know his first name if it wasn't in the records is quite sad but also very true I'm pretty sure my boss doesn't know who I am Fair enough. pretty convinced of that I must say I really don't like what Kirk's wearing on pages 2 and 3 looks like a dress yeah 23rd century fashions have, have obviously uh, evolved to the point where men wear dresses. Uh, the art's pretty good throughout the entire issue, capturing the likenesses of the actors. Kirk looks a little too young at this point, looking more like Shatner looked in Star Trek 2 than he did in Star Trek 5, and he seems to have an Elvis quiff going on. I don't understand what all that's about. But um, Trek 6, well... We know he couldn't be a fan of Elvis listening to Beastie Boys. Sabotage. Um, yeah, in the new one, he listens to the Beastie Boys, yeah. Um, track 6 was just about to be released. But for the most part, they all look like the actors, don't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was quite... It's not photo reference, but it's good enough. Page 3. Eulogies are for the living Jim. The dead could care less. Or should I do that as Dr. McCoy? Mm, go on, more accent. Alright, okay. Eulogies are for the living Jim. The dead could care less. That's not as good as me Kirk, is it? No. <laughs> me Kirk's not very good. <laughs> but goddammit, man, you're a doctor, not an actor. I'm a doctor, not an actor. 
Um, yeah, Dr. McCoy, ladies and gentlemen, pragmatic as ever. To be fair, despite his limited appearance in this book, McCoy is pretty much the instigator of Kirk's desire to learn more about the man who died for him. Um, why, why do all these casual clothes look really silly on the Enterprise? Mm. Might be the future, but everyone's wearing tights in a cardigan. Yes. Well, see, one of the things the original series didn't do... Is this from do... the Federation catalogue? <laughs> the Federation has a bingo catalogue. Yeah. United Colors of Starfleet. Federation next. <laughs> Um, the original series didn't show them in off-duty clothes much, and then the film started doing it quite a bit. The original pilot did, but then the film started doing it a bit more, and you're right, whenever we saw them in clothes, futuristic clothes, you're always like, oh, put your uniform back on, because <laughs> that looks terrible. Uh, in one of the films, doesn't check up with pink for the entire film, and he looks just a bit daft. Is that one of the crappy ones? Pink pants. No, I think that's one of the good ones. He's, I think he's in pink in Star Trek 3, isn't he? I think so. I don't remember. Um, following on from that, though, page five, the security uniforms are awful as well, aren't they? Mm. They look like they're wearing football helmets. Either that or they're going to go and play some uh, laser quest. Yeah. In the, in the, well, they don't have a holodeck in Star Trek, do they? That's next generation. Mm. Um, page six, thankfully, this issue is free of some of the awful puns that Peter David sometimes employs in his work, but his penchant for naming characters after colleagues is present. Captain Harass could be a nod to then-Marvel editor Bob Harris, but the transporter chief, Sura Tuchinsky, is definitely named after the Marvel assistant editor of the same name. The fact that she was drawn to look like the real Sura Tuchinsky is actually just a fluke. Apparently the artist also knew Sura, recognised the name, and drew her to look like the real woman. So... Sarah Chusinski mm. is now copyright a Paramount character because she's actually got a blog and a website okay. and you can actually she actually does she's only done a little paragraph about it but yeah. you can look that up if you want to <coughs> um, pages 9 and 10 mm-hmm. uh, Hunter the security guard oh yes goes from grey to normal coloured Caucasian Caucasian to then back to being Grey again. Is he supposed to be Hispanic in some way? He's supposed to be some ethnicity, isn't he? Yes. I'm getting. I don't quite know what ethnicity he's supposed to be, but you're right, he does change. I don't change. know what ethnicity is grey. I don't. Maybe he's not human. He looks pretty human. Well, a lot of aliens in Star Trek look human, don't they? I suppose he's got a big head, so he could be like... The, <laughs> the Mekon. Yeah. <laughs> or the Talusians. He does turn Caucasian on page 10, yes, which I hadn't noticed, to be honest with you. Um, also on page 10, I have to confess, I thought Kurt was a bit of an arse here. Yes, Hunter, the security guard's a tosser. Mm-hmm. With his monologue about their lifers, and we don't make an effort to get to know each other, and if one of them dies, then that's the job. Um, if any of Kirk's friends had said this, he wouldn't have had a problem with it. Eerie mm. threatens to throw the guy in the brig. The problem that I do have with various incarnations of Star Trek, Commander Riker in The Next Generation being a particular example. Um, Riker's a dullard most of the time, but he's particularly hypocritical when dealing with officers that aren't his friends versus officers that are. Kirk isn't normally like this. Kirk's normally a lot more reasonable. I mean, I get that he's miffed that this guy died for him, Hmm. but he's a bit of a tosser to the security guard, to be honest with you. Uh, Page 12... Ensign Lee's portrayed as a pretty decent kid in his limited screen time. 
I like that David gives the kid just as much screen time as any Star Trek red shirt, but still makes us care for the characters, despite the fact that issues end, we still know nothing about him. No. We've not learned anything new about him. Is that not the point? No. Yeah, that's the point of the story, yeah. David draws attention to the fact that we should get to know people, real people, because one day they may not be there anymore. This is good, because the actual plot of the story is a bit of standard Trek. Sulu gets to say standard orbit, Spock scans stuff with his tricorder, and Uhura says bugger all. Alright. Which is fine with me. Uh, page 14, Spock quotes Douglas Adams. Okay. The threatening to turn the phaser banks of a starship on an encampment doctor is clearly some definition of gentle with which I was previously unfamiliar. Okay. Is a line from the Attackers Guide to the Galaxy. Alright. But not an exact line. Yeah. Obviously. Um, page 15, irony alert. Ensign Lee's the first one to spot trouble. And that leads to page 18, where Ensign Lee's death is actually pretty affecting. Where he dies in Spock's arms as Spock Mindswell's with him to try and make his passing easier. I quite like that. I thought that was quite quite sweet. As I did page 20, with Spock's description of what dying actually is. Yeah. Which I thought was a lovely written page. Gotta do some more acting. I, I can't do Spock very well. Okay. Um, he asks, Kirk asks him what it's like to die. And Spock says, our minds brushed for only the most fleeting of moments, Captain. I sensed a young man, even in the moment of death, who was not fully aware that death was imminent. He knew only you were safe for attack and that he was in pain. He wanted nothing else than the pain to end. And it did. Which is just very logical. Mm. Which is Spock's thing, isn't it? You simply are. Then you are not. That is all. The answers you seek will not be found in morbid musings. We can all do with a friend like Spark. Yeah. Although sometimes you probably want to punch him. <laughs> Page 21 is a huge info dump where Kirk explains the plot in a huge couple of word balloons that just to tie everything up. This isn't necessarily a bad thing because the actual plot is pretty slim. The smug attitude of Ventura is pretty well handled, acknowledging that in this new utopian version of the future there are no prisons or death penalties and that he really doesn't care what the Federation threatens him with because it's toothless. Um, again, this is something that bugs me about later era Trek. The original series had death penalties. Spock was threatened with the death penalty for taking Captain Pike to Telos 4. And they had penal colonies, which we saw in Dagger of the Mind and Whom Gods Destroy. So this bit didn't make any sense to me. That said, Kirk threatening with the Sandar police is quite satisfying. And their reaction, where they they brick themselves, Mm. is funny. Um, And the actual eulogy is a wonderfully written piece by David Butchard in my line delivery. And you can hear Shatner delivering the lines, unless you listen to me do it instead. Uh, again, the actual plot is largely irrelevant because that's not what the story's about. David nails this part of the story, closes the book on a nameless red shirt cliche in Star Trek. Uh, I thought this was fine. Fine. What did you think? I liked it. Did you? Very much a lot. And I read it all in the actor's voice as well. So. Yeah, he is very good at capturing the actor's speech patterns, which is something that you do fall down on when you adapt stuff to other media do they sound like the actors um good I'm glad you enjoyed this one because you're not the big Trek fan that I am are you you'll That's sit and watch it with me yeah on occasion I enjoy old episodes yeah you like you've watched more old ones than new ones I prefer the old ones than the new ones but that's because you've had no choice to as far as I'm concerned the Star Trek which is the original 79 episodes and then there's everything else well everything else isn't as good as especially no, everything next else generation is good or Voyager or Enterprise. 
You left Deep Space Nine off, though. I've not seen much of Deep Space Nine. Have you not? No. Deep Space Nine is the only spin-off series I watched all the way through every week. Okay. Well, Next Generation don't count, obviously, because Next Generation's a sequel, not a spin-off. Is it? Yeah. It's an official sequel? Yes. Because of the whole generation. A spin-off has to err whilst he originally still on the err. So Angel is a spin-off of Buffy. Right, okay. Bionic Woman is a spin-off of the Six Million Dollar Man. But what if Angel happened after Buffy? If Buffy is still on the err, it's a spin-off. That's why when people call Frasier a spin-off from Cheers, it bugs me, because it isn't. It's a sequel. Because Cheers wasn't on the air when Frasier was on the air. But I thought a spin-off was something that took elements out of the original and made up... Spun it off into another series, but it has to be on the air at the same time. So Ashes to Ashes isn't a a spin-off. It's a life on Mars. Yes. Whereas Star Trek gets really confusing, doesn't it? Next Generation is a sequel to Star Trek, but Deep Space Nine is a spin-off of The Next Generation. But Voyager Voyager is a sequel to The Next Generation, but a spin-off of Deep Space Nine. And And Enterprise is a prequel. And ties into Next Generation. Yes, it does. (laughs) It's all very confusing. And there's some excellent adverts in this issue. There's an ad to actually read the US Constitution. I don't know why, why, was there a reason they were plugging this in 1991? Actually go and read the Constitution. There must be a reason for it. Have your own reprinted constitution in your house. Maybe it is. Oh, no, to send for a free information which contains a copy. Oh, so it's free? Yeah. So they're not charging you. Um, there's an ad for Flash 50, which is excellent. Um, Emerald Dawn 2 is kicking off, as is Lobo versus Etrigan. Armageddon 2001, and a great ad featuring Kirk and Picard plugging both DC Star Trek books. The Trek letters pages were always interesting, with some nuggets about Star Trek VI, which had just started filming when they saw print, and the Star Trek opera, which thankfully was cancelled. Although why Peter David left is skirted around, neither Greenberger nor David have kept quiet on the matter in the intervening years. So it's all up there on the internet. So if you want to look at that case, are the movies spin-offs of the next generation or the original series no the sequels to the original series but it's happening at the same time as next generation no it isn't chronologically it's not it's 70 years beforehand and the prequels to the next generation yes because of the generation stuff yeah which was now yeah so we're on the same page regarding Star Trek Generations yes which is a pile of poop (laughs) I've never seen it I've just heard your word for it it's awful it's a, it's a complete. It's you know the disappointment you felt after Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Yeah. Generations is that magnified. Right. Okay. It's no, it's just not a good film at all by any measure. It's one of the few things I've completely disagreed with them about when they've talked about Star Trek and Two True Freaks. Not, not even the little list bit of goodness in there. The cinema, the cinematography is excellent. Right, okay. It's probably the nicest thing I can say about that film. It's boring when it should be epic. It's badly written where it should be epic. It's got Captain Kirk in it, not acting like Captain Kirk. He's got the worst death scene in celluloid history. What is it? Oh, oh, I've fallen off this bridge after diving for a remote control. Oh, come and get me, Captain Picard. And then Picard buries him under some rocks. It's dreadful, dreadfully boring. It should be epic. Yeah, it should be epic. Kirk should have been in command of Enterprise D. Okay. That should have been the finale. Kirk, no, no, Picard can be down on the planet doing boring crap with Malcolm McDowell, so two British actors can be off being all actorly. But on the bridge of Enterprise D, Kirk should have been there. He should have said to Riker, get out of that chair, dude. I'm here. And act 
conversation should have ensued. Okay. And instead, dull. But we're not a Star Trek podcast. We're a Peter David podcast. Today, yeah. At least for today. And finally, to move on from my rant about Star Trek Generations. <laughs> As I say, the cinematography is nice. Um, a last pick from Peter Allen David. When talking about David's career, this one run stands head and shoulders above all others, and will probably continue to do so for no matter how long the man writes. Despite long and critically acclaimed runs on Aquaman, Supergirl, Young Justice and X-Factor, Peter David's longest run on a comic series, and arguably his most critically acclaimed work, was done on The Incredible Hulk. Taking over the book with issue 331 in February 1987 and staying with the title until issue 467 in June of 1998, David had a remarkable 11-year, almost unbroken run on the character. Amidst this, he wrote annuals, a novel and some special format series, essentially making the character his own in a way that most creators can only dream of. The difficulty in picking an issue from David's run was which era of the Hulk that he wrote to choose from. Over the course of his, his run, David made the Hulk grey and sneaky, a Vegas leg breaker, merged the Hulk with Banner and had him become leader of the Pantheon, and had him go on the run with his wife Betty. He worked with some stellar artists like Todd McFarlane, Dale Keown, Gary Frank, Mike Diodato and Adam Kubert. Also, Lee Busby, J. David Wheater and Michael Bailey do an excellent job covering Peter David's run on the show Pad Smash, so I didn't want to cover something they had recently done or would be doing in the immediate future. However, picking stories of the creative favourites for my spotlight, I wanted to highlight the different strengths and approaches to storytelling, and one of David's main strengths is his ability to tackle socially relevant issues in a way that doesn't make you want to bang your head against a brick wall. And to the man's credit, he's able to tackle these issues and show both sides of the argument, despite his own personal political leanings. To this end... I chose Incredible Hulk 420, cover dated August 1994, but released on June 21st, 1994. The cover is stark black. A single light source illuminates the otherwise dark cover, depicting a hospital room with the Hulk holding the hand of a young African-American man in the bed. In the corner is the red ribbon that signifies AIDS awareness, and other than the hospital room, this is the only colour on the cover. For some reason, the cover's tagline, In the Shadow of AIDS, has also been coloured black, so you can't actually read it. The issue is called Lest Darkness Come, and was written by Peter David, with art by Gary Frank and Cam Smith. Coloured by Linus Oliver, lettered by Joe Rosen, edited by Bobby Chase, and editor-in-chief by Tom DeFalco, the story opens with a quote from the Bible, John 12:35. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you. Former Hulk confidant Jim Wilson attends a demonstration at Theodore Roosevelt High School where rioting has broken out between two groups regarding an AIDS-infected student. The school board had ruled that the child could stay in school, but there has been some disagreement on that score. Meanwhile, at the Information Retrieval Service phone line that Betty Ross, wife of Bruce Banner, a.k.a. The Hulk, has been working at, Betty's departure from work is interrupted by a phone call from a man called Chet, probably not his real name, who claims he's going to kill himself because he's been diagnosed HIV positive. He hangs up, leaving Betty shocked. The Hulk arrives at the school, having been keeping tabs on Jim since their last encounter, and he spirits him away to the Pantheon HQ. The Hulk is informed by Dr. Ha that Jim doesn't have HIV. He has full-blown AIDS, and although the Pantheon is working on a cure, it would be immoral to give an untested drug to Jim Wilson. Jim doesn't care, and when the Hulk refuses the drug, he asks for a transfusion of the Hulk's blood. 
Chet calls Betty back under the pseudonym of Vicky, trying to get Chet to listen to reason. Chet is more concerned with what people will think of him and hangs up. Hulk has acquiesced to Jim's demands and arrangements are made for a transfusion and Jim says he feels the effects already. He speaks privately to Dr. Har and reveals he knows that the Hulk is not pumping his blood into him and that's fine. Don't tell Bruce I know, he says. The next morning, Jim is gone. Bruce visits Betty and says he should have tried the transfusion. They're interrupted when Chet calls back. Betty tells Chet her real name and he recognises her as the wife of the Hulk. Betty asks what people he is concerned about. Chet says, the guys. They'll think he's gay and he's not, so he's made a decision. He's going out on his own terms, not on the terms of some disease and worrying what his girl will say. Betty freaks and says he needs to tell her the name of the girl, now. Chet is parked on a railway line and the train approaches. Betty screams for the name of the girl, but it's too late. And it's really sad that that really good issue has been ruined by the fact that all I could hear in that was that bloody Family Guy song that he's got AIDS. <laughs> you have AIDS. Yes, you have AIDS. I hate to tell you, boy, that you have AIDS. You got the AIDS. You may have caught it when you stuck that filthy needle in here. Or maybe all that unprotected sex put you here. It isn't clear, but what, what we're certain of is you have AIDS. Yes, you have AIDS. Not HIV, but full-blown AIDS. Be sure that you see that this is not HIV. But full-blown HIV, but really full-blown I'm sorry, I wish it was something less serious. But it's you've got the Yeah. Um, I did love the juxtaposition of page 1 and page 22, both beginning with a light at the end of the tunnel, popular signifiers of death. On page 1, it's a torch. On page 22, it's a train. Both are harbingers of death for the two characters in the shot. Did you notice that? Mm-hmm. I thought it was really good. I thought yeah. it was really quite clever. And page 3, I love that Betty's got a picture of the Hulk in a cubicle. Mm. <laughs> and that she was just off home and really can't be asked answering the phone. We've all felt like that. Yeah. Well, ask your mum to tell you the stories of the many, many times. Five to. She's five to the hour. She's just about to come home. Phone's not rang all afternoon. It rings. She's on the phone for 20 minutes, thus making her late home to pick up Andy from school. Uh. Happens every week, doesn't it, love? Yeah. Uh, page three. Sorry, page four. I've already done page three. Cameraman called Lou. Farina. I hope so. That'd be really nice. Um, page six. Hulk the Grammar King. Which I thought was very, very funny. I thought Hulk cracked in the one was pretty hilarious. It was hysterical, wasn't it? Since, yeah. since when can the Hulk talk good? Talk well? It's pretty strange to read, though, because this is the only issue where I've read where Hulk's smart. Have you never read Peter Davis' run on the Hulk? No. You need to, you need to rectify that. Okay. If you liked this one, yeah. obviously. If you didn't, there's no point, really. They're not all like this, though. Um, I do like page seven. Which one of you dead men hurt my friend? Which is also hysterical. Mm. <laughs> I, I liked his facial expression on that one. Mm. Which is weird, because it's Gary Frank. Well, this is what I've kept it, saying it's to good you. good Gary Frank. Yeah, it's... You keep banging on when we've covered Secret Origin and Shazam he's doing now, isn't he, and other stuff. You've always banged on about Gary Frank not being very good, and he is, but there's something off about it and stuff. And I, I this is how I remember it. Yeah. When he was really good. 
He's excellent in this, isn't he? Or is, I remember him from that Straczynski book. Supreme Power. Yeah, that. Yeah. He was good in that as well. Yes, but it went He's, he's getting to the point where his, his dead eyes are coming through. Yeah. So he's got none of that here. Mm. Um, page eight. Are you reading off cue cards? No. No, no, not at all. She says, hiding them. Yeah. <laughs> um, page 15 has also got the lovely little touch that Betty was in the toilet. So she comes rushing out, tucking her pants into her skirt, mm. which I did think was funny. <laughs> all that coffee she's been drinking. Mm. She needed a pee. Uh, I like how throughout the entire story as well we never see Chet's face. Well, we do. Do we? At the end, yeah. When? When the train hits him. We don't see him. There you go. Oh, right, yeah, on the last page we see his face. You're absolutely right, I missed that. Looks like a blonde Frank Whitler. Does he? Yeah. <laughs> Alright, fair enough, I'll take your word for that. I've never seen Frank Whitler. Right. I ended up liking the Betty Chet story more than I liked the Hulk story. For some reason, I preferred the story where there really was no hope, rather than the story where there was that little bit amount of hope. Well, where did you get that there was no hope? She could have got through to it. I, I read it as though his mind was set from the start. From the minute that he phoned her. Yeah. And you thought... See, because Jim Wilson was one of the Hulk's partners mm. back in the 70s. I think he was after Rick Jones. Yeah. So the fact that they actually killed him off was quite interesting. There is some pretty dark humour, speaking of Rick Jones, at, the, at his expense on Purge 17, where um, they slag him off for not being able to sing Motown, which gives us a wonderful payoff gag on the next page when he says, Who do you want by your side? Rick Jones or Jim Wilson? And the Hulk replies, depends on whether it involves singing Motown. Mm-hmm. Which was funny. I liked it. Uh, at page 19, I really like how David writes news reports. The report says we spoke with all sides, and yet the views against the boy staying at the school were shown. Yeah, it, it doesn't come across as the expositional news network, does it? No. It comes across as the very biased news network. Well, that, yeah, as well, I suppose. Um, Hector and Ulysses on page 19 were brothers in the Pantheon, and both were a good mix of unlikable but noble. This is all you see of them in this, but yeah. they do get fleshed out quite considerably during Peter Burbage's run. Mm-hmm. Um, the last page is my favourite one of the issue. I like the- how it shows Betty and Hulk... I like how it shows how Betty and Hook can't help Chet, but yet they have to listen to his death and how his last words are cut off before a completely black panel. Mm. And the issue doesn't even have a the end. No, it doesn't have a the end, it doesn't have a next issue box, it just stops. Mm. Uh, it is very effective, isn't it? I think I I thought this was a great issue. I really did. In one story, Peter David manages to tackle AIDS and HIV and the differences between them individual responsibility and the right to die he tackles society's conflicting nature and the need to be informed he shows both sides of the argument with both sympathetic and non-sympathetic characters and crucially he never ever preaches the characters make their own decisions and never once feel out of character or dancing around to meet the needs of a writer with an axe to grind it's also notable for its avoidance of clichés. We don't get an overwrought deathbed vigil or heroic death with gnashing of teeth for Jim Wilson. He's simply gone overnight. What we do get 
is a thoughtful and thought-provoking, powerful and heart-wrenching story that at no point offers answers or pat solutions. The character of Chet and the character of Jim Wilson both approach their fates in completely different ways, and David makes no comment on which he feels is the correct way. Whilst I'm aware of Peter David's political leanings from his website, crucially, I would not know them simply from reading this story. I don't know them. See? And that's just one of the many reasons that it works. It works on a number of other levels as well. The crisp, clean artwork by Gary Frank does not feel like a standard superhero comic, but a drama featuring slightly larger-than-life characters. There's the trademark Peter David humour, in some cases quite black, offsetting the dramatic situation, but it never feels forced or out of place. And again, he lets off on his punning, which he occasionally would have too much of. Um, I mean, I don't mind his humour because life doesn't stop being funny just because it's serious. Just like it doesn't stop being serious when it's funny. This is, quite simply, a wonderfully told story with a message that does not get in the way of it being a glorious character piece about the death of a friend. That was a bit heavy. For, maybe we should have led off with that one. Mm. We should have ended with my dramatic reading of Star Trek. Yeah. Or with the Spider-Man one that I chuckled all the way through. Yeah. That was a bit heavy, that, wasn't it? Mm. Did you like that one? I did like that one. So you liked all three of them? This might be my favourite. Of the three of them? Yes. In that case, I heartily recommend you dig out my box of Hulk comics. Well, it was this and Star Trek. Yeah, well, the Star Trek one worked as the casual Star Trek viewer that you are. It worked yeah. as another episode of Star Trek. The, his run on Hulk is, is brilliant, quite frankly. Okay. You do need to dig them out and just have them at the side of your bed and read a couple every now and again. Uh-huh. You don't have to read them all in one big clump. Like you do with Avengers and Preacher and Everything all that else. stuff. Yeah. Uh, interesting letters page as well. No standard letters from readers, but fellow pros, including Jeff Loeb and Joe Rubenstein, talking about AIDS and the impact it's had on their lives. Uh, no bullpen bulletins this month, which is a shame. Was this the time period where they weren't doing both bullpen bulletins? I don't remember. Uh, good ads in this issue. One for the Maximum Carnage NES video game, which is an excellent shot of Carnage looming over New York City. Um, The 90s X-Men cartoon series on VHS, and there's a free X-Men poster by Jim Steranko when you eat beefaroni. Okay. I have no idea what beefaroni is. Sounds beefy, though. It sounds beefy, and indeed roni. Ren and Stimpy and Are You Afraid of the Dark are also released on VHS, and there are free Marvel trading cards with Crunch and Munch popcorn and Cuppy Crisp Chocolate Chip Cereal. Cookie crisp chocolate chip cereal. Oh, yeah. That's not what you eat for breakfast, dude. Oh, have you not seen them with the the, the cookies for breakfast? No. They look so good. No, it's not right, but it's okay. I had custard for breakfast this morning. Yeah, but you've not been eating properly for days, and all you can still eat at the moment is liquidy type stuff. So I didn't mind you eating that for breakfast this morning, because it's not like you could eat toast or sausage, is it? So that's, that's fair enough, but... Chocolate cookie crisp chip cereal for breakfast? It's a good way to get your kids energised for school. It's a good way to give them a bloody heart attack before the 35. Uh, there's the introduction of the Marvel Universe cards for 1994. The era of the trading card is upon us. Best of all, it was a 90s comic. So what does that mean, Michael? Red hot. <laughs> American Entertainment have mega specials. With a Wolverine holographic cover on issue 75 and hologram covers for X-Men 304. The 
And you know when you're coming up with an issue number to have a hologram cover, 304 doesn't leap off. 300? Yes. Yeah, yeah. 325, possibly. 350? 304? We're in the middle of some big, long, tedious storyline that crossed over into all the X books. Seen as X Factor 25 and X Force 25 also had hologram covers and also cost a whopping $10 and $7.50 respectively. Batman vs. Spawn was also $7.50, while oddly issue 2 of Spawn was worth more than issue 1. And there were limits to how many issues of Gambit and Sabretooth you could buy. Gambit was considered cool at some point. He still is, he's got his own series now. Has he? Yeah. Shows what I know. Uh, there were hot trading cards, and there were $10 and $20 comics featuring Arcadia, with a prism cover. Darker Image, with limited ash can. Does that mean it came with a limited ash can? came with a dustbin with thingy written on it, Image Comics written on it. Yeah. If you didn't like it, you knew what to do with the comic. Yeah. And it was limited, so Repo Man came and got after all. <laughs> Golden City? What the hell's Golden City? It's like a city made of gold. You know, like them Aztec things. Okay, fair enough. Uh, it's got a limited gold cover, which does I, make sense. I, I would have, you know... Yeah, figured that. Unless it was for issue 3 or 4 and had a silver cover. <laughs> Variant reprint. Out of the Vortex had a gold cover. Bloodshot. A Vortex, that would be Put cool. You get it disappears. Yeah. yeah. Bloodshot was validated. Whatever the hell that means. Max was a limited wizard edition. Death Mate. has a hat and a wand. <laughs> Death Mate had a gold cover and Harbinger was only available if you had a coupon. You've got to love the 90s, haven't you? Mm. That does that carnage advert. Mm. That's pretty damn good, that, isn't it? I um, like Maximum Carnage. Uh, I like that advert cover. Alright. I think we may cover Maximum Carnage. I like Maximum Carnage. Next time on an all new episode of Hey Kids Comics, just let me dig out my, my show notes which are in my Spider-Man ring binder. If I have not miscalculated, and I don't think that I have, next week's episode will go up on the 27th of September 2012. Mm -hmm. Two days before your 17th birthday. So next week, in addition to being Michael's choice on Spotlight On, it will also be his birthday show. Yep. Excellent. Which means I get away with doing this creator. Yes. So that's probably told you it's going to be. Yeah. Um, hope you enjoyed it. If you have anything to say to us, you know how to email us. Uh, the website is on virginmedia. Something Akids Comics at virginmedia.com, I think. Yeah. Something like that. Uh, it's in all the spiel at the end of the episode. We hope you enjoyed this one. Feel free to drop me a line to let me know your favourite Peter David stories, if you so desire. Next week it's Michael's Choice. And Michael's birthday show. Yippers. So, cake for all listeners. So, cake for all listeners. If you buy your own cake. If you buy your own cake. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye.
kids comics is that the devil will make work for idle hands to do production and all opinions expressed in the show by Michael and Andrew are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and probably not to be taken too seriously. Old episodes of the show can now be found on the Two True Freaks internet radio network at www.twotruefreaks.libson.com That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S dot Libson L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com So if you're one of those people who'd be wanting to know where all our old shows are that's where you'll find them. All music and sound clips used in the show are copyright the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. Michael and Andrew make no money from this, much to their chagrin. New episodes drop every Thursday, currently at aplayland.podomatic.com, but you can also listen through our Facebook page, which you can friend us on by using Hey Kids as the first name and Comics as the surname. You can also listen on our website, where you can also view the covers of the comics that we've covered this week. That's www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com. If you have an opinion on our opinions, you can email us on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com, where you can drop by and say hello if you're allergic to email. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.